0: Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking.
1: The Earth has been through five mass extinctions already, and the sixth is knocking on our door by our own doing. We certainly have responsibility. We need to take that responsibility seriously. And if we can't do enough, the world will continue to turn. She'll create something even more beautiful in the next iteration of life on this planet.
2: Listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts,
0: Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace.
2: We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole.
0: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now,
2: the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Friday. Happy almost end of July, almost August. Wow. Can't believe it. This is Emma. I'm here today to introduce our guest Solo. The interview is with my mom and I, but I'm just here to pop in and tell you all a little bit about it. Today's guest is Ian C. Williams. He is the author of Soil and Spirit, Seeds of Purpose, Nature's Insight, and the Deep Work of Transformational Change. In this book, Ian draws the crucial link between the work of self-actualization and the solution to the present-day crises that we're facing on the planet. Challenges like climate collapse, human infertility, and the loss of biodiversity that threatens the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth. So what is self-actualization and what does that actually require from us? In this conversation, we take a deep dive into what our inner work as individuals might be and how through self-exploration and our reconnection with place in the natural world, we can create cultural transformation from the inside out. In other words, the way to transform the world is to transform ourselves. This was a fascinating discussion and one that we hope you will find as meaningful and thought-provoking as we did. We've been having what feels like a lot of these conversations lately around self-actualization, self-healing, self-reflection in a way to help the outer world around us heal, which is an interesting way to think about it. So we hope you enjoy. Here is Ian C. Williams, educator and speaker, business advisor, personal transformation expert and author of Soil and Spirit.
1: My name is Ian Williams. I'm an author, speaker, and business advisor. So there's kind of two halves to my work. One is speaking and teaching about personal and spiritual development. And the other is a business advisor with organizations, helping them build capacity and also build healthy cultures.
2: Awesome. And how did you get into that?
1: Depends on if you want the long story or the short story. Long
2: story. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> the personal and spiritual development work really came out of a decade long immersion into self-discovery, which was out of necessity due to 12 years of substance use and abuse. So there's a long backstory there that we can dive into, but that's really where a lot of the introspection. And those lessons came from, in terms of the business advising work, it really was informed by a lot of that personal work, but also, of course, within the context of how I was showing up professionally at the time. When I got out of school, my undergrad, I went straight into youth education because of the science around it, right? 90% of our neural network is formed by the time we're five. And I thought, what better way to have an impact on the future than working with young children and helping them form 90% of their neural network. And that lasted about eight or nine years, almost a decade in youth education. I I switched from early childhood into nature-based education in a variety of different settings. But As I look around, or as I looked around during that decade, I really also kind of had an environmental awakening and realized that we've got a lot of big problems that we need to address and solve. We need to build solutions for these challenges, and we need to do it before these children come of age into adulthood. And so that requires working with organizations and adults that are already in existence. So having been a part of mission-driven organizations in the past, I knew firsthand through experience that burnout culture was real. You know that often the organization is not something that can actually keep you going long term. That really informed my grad school studies, which were largely focused on leadership strategy and organizational culture. So we really try and take a holistic approach in our work with organizations where we're focusing on not just business operations and strategy, but also employee well-being and engagement for the sake of social and environmental impact. So all of my work is this kind of in-to-out process, whether it's personal and spiritual development stuff, it's all inward introspection. Same thing with organizations. We focus internally first so that we can amplify that out-impact externally.
0: Okay. So I would love to even go back a little more. And can you describe an aha moment when your life shifted in the direction of what you're now doing and talk about how this journey of introspection and self-discovery led you to the connection between soil and spirit, which is the name of the book that you wrote.
1: Yeah, there's been many aha moments, but the first one, to go back to 2013, just for context purposes, this is about 10 years in substance use and abuse, Along the way, while I was in undergrad, I inherited a dog. I spent a summer subleasing a room with a bunch of guys. It was a great summer and we ended up inheriting this dog. And then our lease came up and it was like, well, who's going to take the dog? So I ended up inheriting the dog and had her for five or six years. I actually moved back in with my parents at that time. And she just wasn't the most stable of pups. We tried everything we knew how to try. We went to doggy psychologists, we tried doggy meds, we did training classes, we did all sorts of things. We went to the University of Minnesota and had a pretty, you know, extensive screening done. To make a long story short, we ended up letting go of her far too soon in my opinion. It was, it was really early. She was probably only about 6 at the time. And so if anyone's ever had a pet, you know, they know that space that they occupy in your life and they know the pain that often accompanies losing them or letting them go. And that was I think compounded for me because I knew it was happening I knew we were cutting her life short and that was really challenging. And so we took her to the vet for the last time on December 30th of 2013. It was a very traumatic experience for me emotionally. And just a couple of days later, probably within the week, I was laying in bed awake at night and I was staring at the ceiling and I was thinking about some of the dreams that I had had. And I heard her kind of nudge the door open and I could feel her energy walk into the room and she hopped up on the bed next to me. And I could see her and I could hear her, but she didn't make an imprint on the mattress. And it was you know, still so soon after we let her go that I didn't think anything of it, right? It still felt very normal. So I rolled over and she curled up next to me and she let out a sigh and I fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning and I started journaling because I was using that and I still do use that as a means of processing. And I was writing about it as if it were a dream until I realized I was awake when that happened. And it was this completely profound... Mystical experience that I just had no way to wrap my head around. And it really shattered my perception of what I thought reality was. And that was undoubtedly the beginning of a new chapter. It was a huge pivot point and really sparked a lot of the self discovery process and a lot of the intentionality that I still carry with me today.
2: Oh, wow. What a story. I just want to cry. That's so amazing. I know. We love dogs, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're big dog
0: people here <laughs> and have let go of our dogs and have been through that. But I, I haven't had one come back so vividly. I mean, sure, I, I have had him come to me in dreams and so forth, but that kind of experience. So what do you make of it? You say that, you know, it opened up your perception of reality. But can you be more specific than that? Is, what was the big learning from that?
1: Well, I'll answer your question in two different ways. What I learned was, holy cow, there's way more out there than I'm aware of. That was the initial takeaway was, how do I even wrap my head around this? But I know that it happened, right? I mean, I experienced it firsthand. But I think the real learning occurred in the year, months and years after. As I was trying to make sense of it, I said, okay, this is a profoundly spiritual experience. At the time, I thought, I need to go figure it out, right? Which I think now looking back was a little bit naive, right? But how do I explain this? And now I don't really have a desire to explain it, right? It just continues to be this mystical experience in my life that that is deeply meaningful, but it set me on a path of the energy arts. And so the very next week, and I had already planned to go, but it just happened to be kind of synchronistic timing. I went to my first yoga class a couple of weeks later, I went to my first meditation session. A couple of months later, I started practicing Qigong and Tai Chi and martial arts. And so it just kind of unfolded all of these energy arts practices, which are, of course, you know, a tried and true method over thousands of years of refining the self for the sake of spiritual cultivation. Those practices at the time, and again, continue to be really their own versions of teachers in my life. And so, with that specific experience, I don't necessarily have concrete lesson or a takeaway from a conceptual standpoint. But from an experiential standpoint, the takeaway was, you know, certainly I'm just going to immerse myself in these practices and I'm going to learn how to be with myself in a different way, which is something that I knew I needed to do because of my addiction, which was simply masking... underlying depression and anxiety it was all of these things that converged in the moment i think what i really took away from it was now looking back my life is a lot less about the outcome and it's a lot more about the process and that has allowed me to find you know beauty in the journey as opposed to being you know really outcome oriented so soil and spirit really kind of works on two levels was at least the intention. The first is that there is a soil. There's a substrate. There's a foundation to spirituality. And a philosophical conversation about spirituality is only one component. And in my opinion, a very small component. Spirituality for me means experiential. So the title is really a metaphor in that there's this foundational substrate. There's this soil to the spiritual process. But of course the book also uses nature as an analogy and a teacher and a touchstone throughout and i mentioned earlier that you know around the time that all of this was happening i was also in the midst of my own environmental awakening recognizing climate change is not only real but it's something we really need to do something about and i'm passionate about it and so how do i you know enter into this space and be a catalyst for change and of course if one really studies climate change They'll find and learn that soil is an essential component on our, you know, quest to address the climate crisis, right? It is the number one land-based carbon sink that we have. We can store carbon and many other greenhouse gases in the soil of course the health of the soil impacts the health of the plant kingdom and the health of the plant kingdom impacts the health of the animal kingdom right and so it's just one of these cornerstone pieces soil in and of itself is this cornerstone piece environmentally speaking as well something that we really need to pay attention to and not just acknowledge but really invest time into what is soil health and how do we cultivate soil health and also what lessons does the soil have to teach us and so one of my favorite nature-based lessons is that diversity creates resilience in nature. And so a diverse soil biology creates a resilient ecosystem and resilient plants. And that has a cascading effect throughout all of the natural beings on the planet. It's not only a metaphor from a personal and spiritual development standpoint, but it's also a direct indicator and arrow pointing us towards, hey, let's pay attention to the health of our soil.
0: Okay, so how does the metaphor of the diversity of the soil creating resilience in the environment, how does that reflect back to the metaphor you set up as soil as a substrate of spirituality? How would you describe the foundation of your own spirituality?
1: No, absolutely. I I think I would go back to this notion of, right, if we explore spirituality from a philosophical standpoint, We're only exploring one dimension of it, right? And that's largely an intellectual dimension. I think I had a huge advantage with that, you know, early mystical experience with my pup that was experiential, right? It wasn't an intellectual or it wasn't simply intellectual. It was experiential. I could see her, could hear her. Emotionally, of course, I could feel it. There was a physical component. And so if we think about the resilient you know the diversity of soil creating resilience i think we can use a similar analogy in the spiritual space as well right so if we just take the individual we have a physical body mental body emotional body and an energetic body right and this is borrowed from hinduism and yoga culture this notion that there are different layers of self just like there are different layers in the forest or there are different layers in the soil and so taking a holistic perspective and understanding of the self allows us to create more comprehensive and holistic solutions to our health and well-being. And so it's one thing to, like I'm a huge advocate of talk therapy. I've been doing it on and off for two decades at this point. Sometimes I'm seeing multiple talk therapists at the same time, right? Because you get different things from different um, individuals. But the whole experiential component of the energy arts, right? These body-based practices started to show me i actually need to start processing through this emotional content at a different level i need to start experiencing this stuff somatically and i need to figure out how to let go of some of this stuff emotionally that i'm holding on to and then also you know on a a subtler level what's happening with my energies right now you know my subtle energies and and how can i guide those and cultivate those for greater health and well-being it's always a challenge, a bit of a challenge to answer these questions, because I feel like it takes us into a, a metaphorical space, right? We're making a lot of analogies, but it's why I would keep coming back to that word experiential. The spiritual process is not one that we can think our way through. It is one that we experience. Of course, we can experience life or spirituality intellectually, but there are many different dimensions that we can also you know, touch. And again, that's part of the metaphor of the book. The book is structured through four different landscapes, internal landscape, social landscape, external landscape, and spiritual landscape. Again, these kind of concentric rings or circles that typical a pond dropped, uh, a stone dropped in the pond creates that ripple effect moving in to out. As we do that inner work, It impacts the world around us. And so that interdimensionality, I think, is really important and something that, again, is another lesson from nature, right? Interconnectedness. So I hope that answered your question. And I I know it's probably not the most direct answer, but.
0: No, it does. And it also brings, um, I think it's very exciting because you mentioned this, that you also experienced an environmental awakening. And I think a lot of people probably would profess themselves to be concerned about the environment and aware of climate change and taking action, doing the things they can as individuals to help it. But an environmental awakening sort of suggests something different, something deeper. And you, you allude to that when you say it becomes a somatic experience and ecological grief, ecological anxiety, you know, people really being disturbed by the the data and the news so i think of this as kind of like a, a thing from the neck up but these things sort of enter in a more experiential way as you're describing and they become more of a somatic experience and you sort of embody literally this environmental awareness then you really kind of move into a different space with it and it becomes not just a, your cause it becomes more than just something that you're taking action on, but it becomes kind of a passion and a drive and something that it's really inside you.
2: Yeah. And I would say, in other words, in my experience, it just doesn't feel bad anymore. (laughs) Like if it's in your body and you're experiencing the world and nature and you're engaging with solution oriented things, like if you're eating food grown in good soil, or if you're literally playing in the soil, or if you are looking at a beautiful sunset, I think it's really hard to actually feel anxious. It just feels different.
1: Yeah. There's a couple things to come to mind on this topic. One is that particularly early on in that journey of self-discovery, it was this turning inward. At that time in my life, with everything that was going on, inward was very chaotic. And I would escape into nature whether it was a city park in the afternoon to watch the, the leaves fall from the trees in the fall or whether it was a camping trip or whether it was a hike or whether it was just going into the backyard right and sitting under a tree and looking up at the sky that period of my life and those experiences in nature really taught me or allowed me to learn this concept of to experience the concept of peace it's one thing to go So I'm from Minnesota, right? We're in the Midwest and even though I'm in the Twin Cities, the boundary waters are not far away. So you go to this expansive landscape that is still largely untouched and wild and to just experience it for what it is and to, you know, watch the lake be peaceful and to watch the ecosystem and the animals interact and to connect with the ecosystem as a part of it, as opposed to viewing yourself as something that's outside of it nature was probably my first experience of inclusion right feeling like feeling that connectedness that interconnectedness experientially not just thinking about it conceptually so nature was and and continues to be integral in my healing process right it is a space of respite and it was also where those those seeds of eco reverence were really you know sown and and began to germinate and take root this notion of I should really care more about this because I'm experiencing myself as a part of it, as well as climate change starting to enter the mainstream narrative. And now we're fortunate that we've got a lot more data and science, and we need that data and science on this journey, right? To address these these major challenges in terms of the climate crisis. At the same time, it's critical that we recognize Evolutionarily speaking, the human species is here because of the relationship that indigenous cultures have had with the land and continue to have with the land for millennia, thousands of years. We need those scientific solutions. We need the data. But we also need the experiential component, the eco-reverence, the awareness that we are natural beings of a natural world bound by natural law. We can't escape it. And our attempt to escape it, since the Industrial Revolution, has created the climate crisis. To think that we are somehow beyond the bounds of natural law. And we can command and control and manipulate nature or Mother Earth for our benefit without any consequence. well we know that's not the case anymore. And indigenous cultures have known that much longer than Western civilization. So I think it's also imperative that we recognize that therein lies... Our solution to reconnect ourselves, to restitch ourselves into this fabric of the natural world, or to do it consciously, as opposed to thinking there's nature, but I'm here and separate from it in my vehicle. So that mindset is really important. And to your point, Mary, about like what can an individual do? How can an individual get involved and, and be part of the problem solving and solution building? It starts with. Having that awareness and that connectedness and that desire. But more importantly, or I think equally importantly, is the self awareness of what am I passionate about? What is my skill set? And where do I fit into this massive puzzle? Because we need solutions at scale across every industry and every community in every nation, whether they're developed or not. And, or excuse me, whether they're developed or developing. And so, To have that, again, holistic perspective and understanding is something that I think is essential, because it's very easy, and I still fall victim to this all the time, to look at the climate crisis and think, it's just so big, what can I do? But the reality is, we don't necessarily need everybody to do something. We just need to reach critical mass. We need enough people to do something, to find that niche, find that space, and find what moves you and gets you out of bed in the morning, and also probably what keeps you up at night, and to really commit yourself to that, right? To devote yourself to that. And so, for me, the climate crisis is not only environmental, it's also a spiritual crisis, because we've disconnected ourselves from nature conceptually without recognizing we can't actually do that experientially. So, again you know, maybe a little abstract and metaphorical, but that's really how I perceive this. It's not enough to just have the technical solutions, right? Oh, we need to achieve drawdown. Yeah, we need to do that, but we also need to have this, you know, spiritual reckoning and awakening process in order to recognize how we fit into the grander scheme of things collectively, right? For those of us that have become disconnected, because again, those indigenous communities have not strayed from this path in all of their wisdom so that we don't recreate these problems future generations.
0: Oh, I agree with that so much. So Emma, what you said earlier about when you're connecting and you have your hands in the dirt, it it helps with the anxiety, it helps with the grief. And then Ian, you went on described connectedness and peace and you found your place when you were in nature. And then we're talking about, you know, on the other hand, the environmental movement, you you have to do this and do that and achieve drawdown what if the solution, and I think this is what you've been saying, Ian, what if the solution really is for everybody to find that sense of peace and connection? And what if that is the solution? And I, I guess that's what you're saying. It's an inner to outer thing. And we're also busy in the outer part of this, you know, as we're talking about it, and it's really kind of exciting to me. I, I To me, it feels like a light bulb because all of the news, all the data, all the scary stories, when really what we really need to do is just all go out there and kind of fall in love.
1: It's turning inward right and that's one of the messages of the book the greatest gift that you as an individual can give the world is saving yourself and there's so much i'm in a hotel room right now right there's a sign on the toilet that says save the earth you know don't you use the towel more than once the earth doesn't need saving we need saving the earth will be fine without us arguably you could say at this point in human evolution the earth would be better off without us to think about the course of earth's evolution And to think about our connectedness to it. The earth doesn't need saving. We need saving. And Mm -hmm. when we as individuals go inward. And we find whatever way is necessary to connect with that stillness. And that peace. And that not just consciousness but conscientiousness. It's in that space that we realize the profound impact that we have in the world. And... If more people discovered that space and connected with that space inside themselves, we'd have more agents of change in the outer world, you know, the external world as well, in society working on behalf of, you know, the environment and spiritually speaking, you're spot on. I mean, that's really the whole central ethos of the book, right? Is save yourself. Because in that process, you will discover and learn the tools that you can offer the rest of us and the earth.
2: I was gonna say I'm curious how going back to what you we're saying, beginning of the conversation about your work in schools, you work with what school, what age, like younger kids or?
1: Yeah, I spent the first five years doing early childhood. So zero to five, call them the wonder years, right? And again, that 90% of your neural network is formed by the time you're five, which is mind boggling to me. And at the same time, during that time is when I started to have my own kind of environmental awakening. And, and I wanted to be a little bit more like climate or nature focused with my work. Because at the age of zero to five, you know you're really focused on social skills and ABCs and one, two, threes. and of course, there's much more you can do, but your capacity is limited simply due to the intellectual capacity of the children. Of course, their experiential capacity is outweighs most of ours, right as adults. So then I moved to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, which is an offshoot of the University of Minnesota. I was a part of the youth ed department there, and we would teach nature-based field trips. So schools would come to visit and we had a whole suite of field trips depending on the season and we would provide them with an opportunity to interact with nature. So I did that for about five years. And, you know, I've, I've also educated in other capacities as well, right? I mean, at this point I've educated ages two to 78. I've done, you know, energy arts instruction. So I was a Qigong instructor for several years. I also worked at a, nature-based center for at-risk youth. So, you know, at-risk youth were basically inpatient in this place, but they had a vast expanse of wilderness. And so we would get them interacting with nature because of those healing benefits. Right. And I think this is just going a little bit off topic. So I'll just keep it short. But Emma, to your point earlier about like actually getting your hands in the soil, it's part of the beauty of where the data and science is now we know why that's good for our health, right? We know that there are endorphins released in our system. When we're interacting with the soil and turning it over and moving it in our hands, right? And we're we're smelling and we're experiencing. So, I spent the majority of my time in youth education educating grades six and below.
2: Okay, I'm just curious how you convey these ideas that seem pretty cerebral, even though you're talking about experience to kids, grade six and below, and how you impress these values and the importance, or is it just as simple as you help provide experiences?
1: Yeah, I think with the youth education and the time that I spent there, it was largely just about providing experiences. And I also think about like where I was at that time in my life, still learning very much how to experience and still am. But I was really at that time, all of this conceptual stuff was, it was just starting to take root. And so in the beginning of COVID I had applied to grad school and I decided to go back because I I knew at that time I didn't want to stay in youth education because it just felt like I had more to offer. I had other parts of myself that I wanted to explore and offer. And I also, you know, again to go back to earlier in the conversation, we need solutions, we need them now. And Fortunately, now we have a massive youth movement, global youth movement that's you know environmentally focused, climate focused, which is amazing. At the same time, businesses are a major contributor to climate change, right? And I think it's easy to be kind of greenwashed with you know we as individuals, we as families need to stop using plastic bags and use less water and you know all these little things that of course add up and are important. We also need to look at enterprises, right, and organizations so i'm really motivated by you know the renewable space climate space climate tech climate financial technology we're we're starting to see this whole social enterprise movement in businesses that are climate focused social focused justice focused equity focused socially and environmentally and so i decided to go back to school to really kind of send all this grist through the mill right that last decade of my life of Okay, these are these core pieces that are important to me. But how do I make sense of them, and how do I put them into some sort of cohesive package to offer the world? And out of that kind of came these two different halves, right—the personal and spiritual development work. That's book, uh, workbook, audio book, eventual e-course, coaching, speaking, as well as professional services for organizations. How do we focus on? optimizing their business processes so they've got more capacity and bandwidth to think about employee employee engagement and well-being with the same philosophy at hand. How do we improve the health of these organizations so that they can then improve the impact, the positive impact that they're having in the world, as well as the positive impact that their people are having outside of the workplace, right? Because I've been an employee who's worked for a mission-driven organization or multiple, and I spent a lot of time evenings and weekends complaining about work. It's not a constructive space to be in. And a lot of those solutions were very simple or the organizational so- solutions that I was perceiving I thought would be very simple, right? To just make a few changes to improve the working conditions. So it was all kind of birthed out of my own experience personally and professionally. And so now I'm very grateful to have an opportunity to serve organizations that are mission-driven to try and help improve the organizational health and well-being, but also the health and well-being of the people within those organizations.
0: Do you find as you're working with these organizations, kind of an awakening as to the importance of, of, of humans finding this deep connection with nature? I mean, you don't, you don't expect to see this in a corporate office where y- you might have problems in the systems, but, and you know from your own experience that this environmental awakening, this deep environmental awakening helps you so much. How do you instill that in corporate America? <laughs>
1: I'll speak to that question, but the short answer is I don't. I see my role as a capacity builder and someone who's focused on culture. And I've very intentionally chosen to work in industry spaces and verticals that people are already largely aware of these issues. But to answer your question on a a deeper level, Mary, we need to start with a conversation about equity. Not that it's not worth time, but it's unfair to expect someone who's just trying to keep the lights on or put food on the table, or meet basic needs in life to care about something beyond themselves or outside their household. It's unreasonable to expect that of them, because it's not part of human nature or condition. And so we can't really have this conversation, in my opinion, without having a conversation about equity under resourced communities and social injustice. And environmental justice are two wings of the same bird we cannot separate them which is why you know we as an organization have built in service models into our business processes right so we do the best that we can for every paying client we do a buy one give one we go find an organization that might not have the economic resources to hire us but might still be able to benefit from our services and we gift those services to them because there's a huge resource gap here And that resource gap is also a linchpin in this environmental movement. For the organizations, for the individuals, for the families, for the nations, for the communities that have the resources to do something about climate change, it is incumbent upon us to do something because we're the people who have the resources. That's not the end of the sentence. It's the beginning of a conversation about why has that been the case. And that's a conversation about equity. And so the reason that we specifically like to work with, I mean, our our target market is primarily clean tech, climate, financial technology companies, renewable energies, right? For people that might not be familiar with the lingo, but we have levers that we need to pull. We need to focus on the grid. We need to improve battery storage and technology. Agriculture technology is huge. I mean, there's all sorts of things we need to do. And we have pillars that we're passionate about. And that's why we choose to work in those spaces. But at the same time, there's this social component. So maybe to answer your question more directly, Mary, we don't really try to get people to care about the environment. We try and give people and organizations the skills that they need to take care of their health and well-being and to raise their floor. So that now they've got a bit more capacity to ask those deeper questions, those more kind of philosophical or metaphysical questions of, well, what do I care about? Who am I? How do I want to be a part of the solution? What am I passionate about? It's really hard to answer. It's really hard to ask and answer those questions. Again, if you're just trying to put food on the table and get through the day to day. So we're not out there, you know, proselytizing and trying to shove this down people's throats. That is absolutely not the role that we take. Nor are we your typical kind of environmental consultants. We don't come in and and do an audit and say, okay, well, you know, change out your light bulbs and here's how to reduce your emissions and et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to build a bridge between climate and the individual through well-being. Fundamental theory of change being if individuals have that awakening and that, that understanding of the interconnectedness, they'll naturally find their place in the world. And they'll naturally find a place that they want to be a part of the solution, and they'll naturally devote themselves to that.
0: That's so interesting. And it it reminds me of when you and I spoke earlier, earlier conversation, and we were talking about how these deep nature experiences are largely an experience of privilege, that there are so many people that are not in a situation to go and have those moments at the boundary waters or, or on a hike or... The wild places are not accessible to, to most of the world to, ha- to have those experiences. So, yeah, I completely hear what you're saying, that it's not about yelling at everybody that they need to go out and get have this deep nature connection so that we can save the world. <laughs> There's too many people that are f- so far from that, that the work really, I like your expression, raising the floor. The work really lies in bringing more people closer to the ability to have these experiences, to have this inner environmental awakening, and then do their own work. So yeah, I hear you. That's very interesting. So thank
2: you. (laughs) What gives you hope for the future of humanity and its relationship to the earth?
1: So much. I spent a full decade of my life being very defeated around this specific concept just very fatalistic. And I had a teacher at a permaculture training one time teach me a really valuable lesson by sharing a simple story. She said, Ian, we need people on both ends of the spectrum. We need people out in the streets who are protesting and trying to you know, fix the current paradigm. But we also need people on the other end of the continuum that are out trying to build a new paradigm. Mm-hmm. And one person can't do both. It's too emotionally taxing to be on both ends of the continuum at the same time. Though my opinions about that statement are a bit more nuanced now, I think one person can be on both ends of the continuum if they know how to manage themselves well. It was what I needed to hear at the time. It gave me permission to accept the fact that I'm really passionate about building new systems. So there are these personal insights that I picked up along the way. Again, very fortunate with my work to work with individuals and organizations that are devoting themselves to this right bodies of people that are organized under a collective you know organization or institution that are devoting themselves to a certain cause i feel so privileged to have that opportunity you know to be in those spaces every day where people are passionate about what they do and they're motivated and they're innovative and they're dedicated it's a wonderful opportunity and it, you know, keeps fuel in my tank. The youth climate movement is amazing to see. It's amazing to follow, you know, to know that there's a generation out there who is just simply not willing to accept anything less than, and to see such young people already being so involved in government and policy and, you know, the public space, as well as the private space, to see the this paradigm shift that we're starting to see in the for-profit world. Consumers really caring about where the products that they're consuming are coming from. That's something that is motivational. The regenerative agriculture movement, you know we could spend the rest of our time and many more sessions splitting what does regenerative agriculture mean. But to have a conversation that is now beyond organic is really empowering. Food is a way that we interact with the natural world every single day. And that's a massive thing that is very motivating for me. I'm very passionate about, you know, in those moments and times where I still feel fatalistic, there's one thing that always brings me hope, which is the fact that the earth has been through five mass extinctions already. And the sixth is knocking on our door by our own doing. And should that sixth mass extinction come to pass, it might not be the worst thing in the world because each time the earth has created something more beautiful than the last. And so that's also something that brings me hope, right? And it reminds me that we certainly have responsibility and we need to be, we need to take that responsibility seriously. And if we can't do enough, the world will continue to turn and she'll create something even more beautiful in the next iteration of life on this planet.
0: I'm with you on that. I, I admit to taking great comfort in that (laughs) and and what you said earlier like the earth is going to be just fine that's the answer I give myself when I start experiencing
2: eco grief you see it so easily in abandoned buildings and malls and things it's like on one end you're like oh and then you're like oh wait there's literally plants growing out of it and that it's sort of that image is like
0: yeah the the earth will endure and has endured and we might, we might do ourselves in here, but <laughs> in the end, it'll all be okay. That's, I, that's the way I feel. I mean, a lot of people don't, maybe don't feel maybe that, that's, that, that that's so okay. But <laughs> anyway, that's where I am on it. But so, and for, for someone listening to this, and you know, this is certainly a, a lot of very complex ideas and thoughts going on here. And, uh, you know, a listener might be struggling to gosh, what can I do to have more of an inward experience of this? Where can I begin as an individual to walk this soil and spirit journey?
1: What I would say is that all of the solutions you seek begin with sitting still. The age of information brought with it the age of distraction. We have more information We have more convenience. We have more comfort than we've ever had in the history of the human species and civilization. With that comfort and convenience has not come peace. And so there may be a lot to sift through, but the way out is in. The way that we get ourselves out of this mess that we've created is by going inward. And the beauty of that process is that there's not necessarily a handbook for it. And so to connect back to the earlier part of our conversation about the energy arts, it's one reason why I gravitate towards them so strongly. These are processes and systems and technologies of self-refinement and cultivation that have been refined over thousands of years. Long before Western science and data arrived in the world, people were finding ways to cultivate themselves from within. So from a motivational standpoint, that's what I would say from a tactical standpoint, because I think that's really where you're trying to get with this question, I would go back again to those four layers of self right? that are borrowed from yoga culture, physical body, the mental body, the emotional body, and the energetic body. There are ways to interact with each of those layers of self. But of course, the awareness needs to be maintained that it's all one experience. We're not only one individual, but we are one life, very literally. We're exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide with the plants. We're exchanging atoms when we're, you know, out in the world. But like we are literally one life. And the science backs it up. So think about those four layers of self and just go through a systematic process of how you can interact with each layer. You know, so I mentioned earlier, like I'm a big proponent of talk therapy, but I recognize that it's one-dimensional. And so when I uncover certain emotional content in talk therapy. I might need to go about processing through it in a different way. And that has largely led me to the energy arts, which have taught me how to be in my body, right? How to experience the discomfort or the pain, and then to let it pass, right? To let it alleviate itself. And sometimes I actually need to work through it. And sometimes I just need to let go and stop identifying with it, stop being attached to it. Those are foundational building blocks. Physically, we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to devote ourselves to these grand challenges in the world, right? Because burnout is real. Mentally, we need to stay stable. We need that equanimity to be balanced, to not get too out of whack when things get challenging, because they will get challenging. Same emotionally. And so this is part of my work in terms of personal and spiritual development, is trying to provide a systematic way to move through these processes these different layers of self to make it less ethereal and more tangible so one thing that i often tell people and this is a process that it's kind of come out of my own work that can be applied to either one of those layers of self is it's the bop it process right every business needs an acronym brainstorm organize prioritize it was also a wonderful game from the 90s i wonder where all of those plastic devices are now laying in a landfill but let's be very literal and tangible what do i want to do about my physical health Sit down and brainstorm a bunch bunch of opportunities, a bunch of solutions. Write down a list of 20 or 30. Really force yourself to go big. After you've brainstormed all of them, then you can organize them. Look at your list. Organize it categorically. Maybe some is strength training. Maybe some is flexibility training. Maybe some is cardio training. Maybe some is nutrition. Whatever. You've got a bunch of ideas. Organize them. Find a way to organize them because you won't think about them in an organized manner. And then you can move to that third process, which is prioritize, take your organized lists and all those ideas and recognize that most of them are crap and you should cross 90% of them off and just focus on the few pieces that are really going to move you forward. And in the beginning for someone who feels like I'm just starting my journey, what I would say is it doesn't matter where you start. It just matters that you start. It took me 10 years to realize That I should be asking the question, what do I need today? Do I need to go lift weights today? Or do I need to go on a run today? Or do I need to go do yoga? or, Or do I need to sit in meditation? Or do I need to journal? In the beginning, I wasn't thinking about that stuff systematically. I was just doing it. I was just trying to experience it. Again, it doesn't necessarily matter where you start, it matters that you start and find a way to move through that process systematically. Use the scientific method. To teach yourself about yourself you are your own greatest teacher and there's plenty of information out there in the world that can help you but there's also a lot of noise that can distract you and so that's where that self-awareness piece is key to recognize what you're going to allow into your sphere conceptually and experientially and also recognize like what you can say no to and just let it go because it's far too easy to overcomplicate this process
0: yeah when we're talking about this sort of thing with people, it gets around to what about the person again, the person that is just concerned about getting food on the table, they are hungry, they are busy, they can't think about any of this stuff. What would you say to that person like i'm I'm interested in all this, and i I want to have more more of this experience, but I just can't. Life has just got me,
1: yeah. A lot of my work, specifically the personal and spiritual development work, is built upon a foundational principle that our lives are self-created. That is not to dismiss systemic oppression, which does exist. But when I say our lives are self-created, what I mean is that, what I'm trying to say is that we all have the same propensity to experience deeper aspects of life. There is nothing external that is preventing one from exploring the internal. And that work, though it may not be easy, can be simple. As simple as starting with five minutes of quiet time at the end of the day before you go to bed. Leave your phone in the living room. Don't take it into bed with you. Give yourself some quiet time, some downtime, some distraction time. And if it's not five, if you don't have five minutes, which some people might not, five breaths. I mean, for me, that is a continual reminder. Food is a way that we interact with the natural world every single day. Breath is the way that we interact with our physical body every single day. And becoming conscious of breath, it might sound a little woo-woo, but it really opens up a whole new dimension of life, right? To experience just the bliss of breathing and the abundance of being in your physical body. And it might teach you things that you don't want to hear, but chances are good that it's teaching you things that you need to hear. So to the person who feels like they don't have the resources to do this work, what I would say is that this work is resourceless. You don't need the external world to be in any particular way in order to explore your inner landscape. That being said, from an equity standpoint, again, those of us that have the time, the energy, and the resources to do both need to ensure that we're doing everything we can to close those equity gaps to provide under-resourced communities with more opportunity to develop themselves and develop their own work. It's a tricky space. And I, you know, as someone who's white presenting and male presenting, who experiences a lot of privilege in the world, this is something that I have to keep in mind every moment of every day. It's too easy for someone who looks like me to assume that everybody has the same responsibilities that I do, or excuse me, the same opportunities that I do. But I think when it comes to this inner development work, we do all have the same opportunities.
0: I think that's very beautifully said, very well articulated. And yeah, I just want to affirm that. I believe it, that even someone who feels like they they are so overwhelmed with life and responsibilities or financial burdens or whatever, you do have your breath because you are here and you're breathing on the planet. And- start there, (laughs) start with being mindful of one breath, two breath, five breaths. And yes. So, so thank you. That was, that was very well said.
2: I would also add, if you find yourself talking to someone like this and they say, but I can't, I think another helpful response is how can I help? I think when I feel frustrated by the world and I want other people to, you know, I have found that something that's helpful for me is changing my thought to say, how can I help? That's much more empowering place to come from than a place of like frustration that just at all, the way things are.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's, it's one of the most profound insights that I feel like I've stumbled upon in this life, you know, is that a, the extent of my compulsive and neurotic behavior and thoughts I wish the external world would just do this because then I would feel that internally. To recognize that that is a fundamentally flawed perspective, to recognize that you are creating your own suffering when you perceive and believe in the world in that way is like you said, Emma, it's completely empowering. And there's that word responsibility arrives on multiple levels. Collectively, we have a responsibility to address the climate crisis and close equity gaps and, and all of these other address all of these other challenges. But that responsibility also applies internally as well. To the person who says, you know, I'm, I just can't. One of the things that my mother has taught me is, you know, people will change when they're ready to change. And part of my responsibility is I feel like to just share my truth as often, as frequently, and as widely as possible with the awareness and, and complete understanding that it's not going to resonate with some people. And I'm completely okay with that because diversity creates resilience. It's not one truth. Many paths lead to the same destination. And to witness others speaking their truth is something that is wonderful and inspiring and motivating for me internally. And that notion of, you know, how can I help? I think we can apply that externally and we can also apply it internally. Like What can I do for myself right now? Because I'm spun out or I'm anxious or I'm experiencing, you know, discomfort, etc. How can I help myself? In this moment. And there's a line in the book selfishly pursuing your own liberation is what will create the selflessness required to move us out of this collectiveness. Selfishly pursuing your own liberation, being selfish about your own growth and development actually creates selflessness and it puts us in a position to be of service in the world. So I just feel like that's, you know, one of the many beautiful idiosyncrasies of life.
2: And thinking of it as liberation too, it makes so much sense because free people can help free people. If you can't help, then you can't be helpful. <laughs> so it's such a hard why. I don't know why that's so hard for us, but I think it's a rewiring that we're collectively needing to reckon with together. So thank you for saying it so well.
0: Yes. So here we are on the question. We ask all our guests, what does slow living mean to you? If you are able to access that in your life right now, you're a busy guy, you're a writer, you, you work with these businesses and organizations and you travel. So what does slow living mean to you?
1: Well, it starts with the breath, but slow living to me feels synonymous with stillness and silence and cultivating that internally, even when the external environment is chaotic and frantic. And being aware when my internal environment is chaotic and frantic,
2: amazing <laughs> awareness, yes. What does the good Thank dirt mean you. to you? and that that we don't mean the podcast. <laughs> Some <laughs> people answer it like, well, it's a good podcast. <laughs> what does the good dirt
1: mean to you? For me, the good dirt means the deep work, coming to terms with these aspects of self, coming to terms with our collective circumstance, coming to terms with truths that are embedded in the natural world. It's deep work, but it also points us in the direction of a greater calling. And the fact that the solution is within the problem is so beautiful to me. It's evolution in, pro- in process. There's rich diversity in the good dirt, both internally and externally, and of course, in the natural world.
2: Very
0: good. Thank you. So, In closing, what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you're doing?
1: In terms of personal and spiritual development, I would simply say, save yourself and share that process. Lean into that emotional vulnerability because it's going to be vulnerable to go inward and to come to terms with those aspects of self that you need in order to liberate yourself. But it's also going to be vulnerable to share that process in community with others because not everyone is necessarily presents themselves as being accepting but knowing that when that self-acceptance is there it doesn't really matter how others receive you you're willing to receive yourself in terms of professional services for organizations i would just go back to the the fact that you know we're culture and capacity builders we're focused on building the impact of the organization by improving the health and well-being of the people and we try our best to do that in a holistic way and we really see our our mission as supporting mission driven organizations so if there are mission driven leaders or you know frontline staff out there of of organizations that feel like they might resonate or connect with this work please reach out collaboration is what's going to create the innovation needed to build these solutions at scale
0: thank you so much This has been such an amazing conversation. And for those listeners that are intrigued by these ideas, of course you are. That's why you're listening today. Check out Ian's book, Soil and Spirit. And also you've been on some other podcasts that people can check out. And it's just all these ideas that we're turning around here and processing are important. And thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you, Ian. So many things you've said today are really going to stick with me. So thank you. <laughs> this is great.
1: <laughs> yes. Thanks for holding the space. I appreciate
2: it. Thank you for tuning in, calling in and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer,
0: a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John
2: Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at Farmer. That's Farmer, Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye!